let's just do a quick catch-up on some of the opening points that we made last week because we just started a series on three short Now, normally, we all assume that when we make choices throughout the day, most of the choices that we make are free choices. Nobody is forcing me to do whatever I am doing. I actively choose what I do. So I see one person who is sitting and still you know, eating her sushi. Nobody is sitting and forcing her or asking her to do so. This is her own free choice. However, Rabbi Desler pointed out an interesting phenomenon in our inner mechanism. And he said, whenever I make a choice, I really have to make an ana do an analysis of which part of me is really choosing that thing. So last week we talked about the example of making a choice between cocoa pebbles and cookie crisp. And we analyzed, some people here would have chosen the co cocoa pebbles, some would have chosen the cookie crisp. But whichever you choose, you have to ask yourself, why am I doing that? What is pulling at me to make that decision? The people who wanted the cocoa pebbles said, chocolatey milk, I love it. Their taste buds are saying, yes, go for it. Some people here would say, you know what, I like Cocoa Pebbles. That gives me like 80 degrees of pleasure, but when I eat Cookie Crisp, that's 95. In which case, I feel as if there's a choice going on because I feel like there's a struggle going on inside myself. I hear two voices. Part of me is saying Cookie Crisp, part of me is saying Cocoa Pebbles, and then I go and I choose the Cookie Crisp. So I feel as if I just made a choice. Rabbi Desler points out what really was happening was in my body, there were, my taste buds had two different poles that were equally pulling, not equally, but were pulling at me in two different directions. Here is little me. There's a tug of war going on inside myself between two forces, which actually I never chose for myself. These were things that were actually planted in me. Did anybody here ever make a decision as to which set of taste buds they would be born with and whether theirs would give them the cookie crisp message or the cocoa pebbles message? Not really. This is something that was like predetermined and set inside of me. Therefore, if I end up choosing the cookie crisp simply because my body pull in this direction was stronger than my body pull in this direction, then there wasn't actually a me that was making an active choice. There was a me that was allowing myself to be pulled by a force that was actually planted inside me. And what we really pointed out last week is we differentiated between the fact that while our brains really are a very strong part of my identity, well, our body parts are uh, somewhat interchangeable. We spoke about the fact that if, um, God forbid, I would have my finger like cut off by a machine and then I would need to get grafted and I would get Stacy's finger on my hand, you wouldn't say, Mrs. Kalazan, you're just not Ivy Kalazan anymore. You have become Stacy. Even though I have her finger on me, my finger is a part of me, it's a part of my body, but it's not my essential self. So what we kind of concluded last week was some of the choices that we make end up being when it's just body versus body, at that point there really isn't an active free choice going on. Example number two, we spoke about coming home from work, I'm really tired. I just want to go to sleep, but I haven't eaten in a while and I really want to eat. Now, I feel as if I'm making a decision, I'm making a choice, which one should I go? Now, if it's kind of like, my body just wants to pull me into bed, but my 
my stomach is saying, let's go for the food, and whichever one is a stronger pull wins out, then it's really a tug of war or a debate going on between two body forces, in which case this isn't the act of me choosing. However, and this is the final point we made, I think, toward the end of last week, if I am making a conscious mind choice or value choice where my body is saying, you know, you're really hungry, go for the food. But then I say to myself, you know what, if I don't get to bed now, I'm not going to make it up tomorrow morning and I really want to have an accomplished day. I am going to go to sleep right now. Then it wasn't just a body pull pulling at me, but there was really an active conscious value decision that was going on where I wasn't just being pulled by my body, but I was deciding what I want my body to do. Any just questions on this, this basic idea? Is it still a free choice if you then just go with the body thing after having that thought process? That's a good question. So sometimes I can make a choice that will be a body choice, but if I'm making it from a value priority decision, then it's a conscious me making it. Meaning I can say, my body's pulling at me right now, I am so tired. But because I am so tired, I know that if I don't give my body that sleep right now, tomorrow morning I'm going to be edgy and irritable with everybody around me. I don't want to be that kind of human being. I'm going to take care of my body and give it sleep. So yes, I am going after my body pull, but I am doing it not just because my body is pulling at me, which is like how any animal would go to sleep. I am actually making a moral choice to take care of my body. Great. Good. However, okay, good. Now, to understand this a little better, we have to really understand a little bit more about our own inner workings. And to do that, let's go through a little bit of a dissection of us of who we are and how we work. Okay? I'm going to give you a pasuk, a verse in the Torah, that's going to describe the creation of Adam, first man. We all are descendants of him and come from him. As I give you the verse, I'm going to give it to you in English. I'm just going to ask you to try to notice how many different ingredients are there in this creation of man. Here we go. And Hashem God formed man of dust of the earth and he blew in him a living soul in Hebrew called Neshama and man became a living being creation of first men Somebody tell us how many different ingredients are there in this creation. I'll read it, one, read, it. read it one more time. Sorry, it may not be so clear. We had sheets, they just, we didn't get, we don't, they didn't make it today, but we're going to admit that God will have it next week. And Hashem God formed man of dust of the earth, and he blew into him a living soul, and man became a living being. How many different ingredients are there in this creation? Two. Two, which are? Okay, first there's dust. The dust is the formation of the physical body part of man. So God like takes clay, earth, shapes the physical body of man, 
Ingredient number two? Breath. The breath of Hashem that he blows in and that becomes man's spiritual soul part of self. Is man alive before he gets the soul? How do you know it? And then he became a living soul that was at the end of the process. So first he's just like a dead clay puppet. Then Hashem does CPR, as it were, right? Like, you know, you blow in that, that, and man then becomes alive once he gets that living soul. Now that means that moment by moment that we are living, we are living because we have actually a piece of divine godliness within ourselves. When animals are created, they're created from, with that physical body part, but you don't have God blowing in a living soul. Now that doesn't mean that, that animal, animals are living beings and have a life force called a nefesh, but they don't have the side of intellectual moral choices we're going to talk about. Um, you can't say to a dog like, uh, excuse me, today's Yom Kippur, so if you don't mind, you'll just you know skip lunch this afternoon. Um, there's a higher goal and value for the day. Or you can't say to the cat, um, you know, that, that cat food dish, that's Felix's please keep your boundaries appropriate and be <laughs> honest, you know. The decisions and moral struggles and choices that humans have come really from this spiritual part called soul. So if I, would if I want to imagine this, here's the body down here. Here's God. Hmm. Now you're okay with me? Thank you, Ellie. Here's God up here. And then God is blowing down into him this soul. Now the Kabbalistic um, books, the Zohar, describe whenever somebody blows, blowing is always from your own inner essence, right? You blow up a glass vase. You breathe in, breathe out. That glass vase is now filled with the breath coming from the inner part of that glass blower. So that means that every human being, and this is not only Jewish people, every human being has within him a divine aspect of godliness, and those are the voices of conscience that always want to like, I should be honest, I want to be giving, not just taking, I want to have meaning in life, right? You don't have dog therapists, well, now you do, but <laughs> you don't have real dog therapists that like, you know, want to work out, I don't feel that I'm really actualizing my meaning in life and who I want to become as a person, right? Um, okay, now if you want to imagine the soul being blown down, we usually think of the soul as just being like a single unit chunk. The book Sefer Nefesh HaChaim by Rav Chaim Velazhner actually explains that. Thank you, think that we can do this. Right, because it's, it's kind of a circular. Would it work if we. Are you able to see down there if I, if I do down, now, down here? It's okay. Or maybe if you write on it down there and then... And then it pick up. it up. Okay, I'm going to try to do it up here because I want you to see it well. Okay. The Nefesh HaChaim says... Turn the chair sideways. Oh, yeah. There we go. That's an idea. And then we're talking. Thank you, thank you. Okay, that there are actually five sections within the soul being blown down. Each one has a different name to it, and they read as follows. The highest one is called Yechida. 
which literally means in English unity. The next one down is called Chaya, which means life. So if you know any girls whose names are Chaya in Hebrew, it doesn't only mean an animal, it also means that high part of the soul, which is the life force. Then you have a section called Neshama, which we usually translate as soul. Not to be confused with the general title here of the whole thing called the Neshama. This is also the name of the third section within it. Then there's something called Ruach, and below that there's something called Nefesh. Now, within these sections, each section has 10 subsections or 10 links within it. So if you want to imagine this as like a chain going down from God down to us, the Yechida has 10 links of Yechida part, then the Chaya has 10 triangular links here within it, the Neshama has 10 links within that, and basically the highest link of Chaya is attached to the lowest link of Yechida. The highest link of Neshama is attached to the lowest link of Chaya. Highest one of Ruach down, all the way down. So if I want to imagine again just the image of it, if you imagine this glass blower making the vase, there are three stages as he's blowing. First, he goes, <gasps> and you have the breath like in his mouth, in his throat, which is still like attached to his inner essence. That is the part of the Neshama that as God is blowing it, as it were, of course God is not a physical being, but this is just the image to make it real. Um, there's a part of my soul that's constantly connected back to God in the upper realms of spirituality, in like, as it were, in, like, in God's breath. Then, as you continue blowing, he blows his breath into like this straw, which is gonna carry the breath into the hot sand. That's the intermediary levels blowing down. Then you have the hot sand, which is going to absorb or take in that breath in a physical sense, and now it blows into becoming a glass piece. That's as it flows down into the body itself, into the nefesh. Now, each one of these parts gives us, has different voices within our own inner self. So the nefesh is the part that's most connected down to the body, to the sand itself. The nefesh literally is translated as life force. Now, it's hard because it also sometimes is used to mean soul. It is. But neshama is the higher word for soul. Nefesh is the lowest part within the soul. Not only humans have a nefesh, every living being, meaning insects, plants, not plants, I'm sorry, every insects, animals, birds, fish, all moving living things have this nefesh life force within themselves. This is one of the reasons that Jews are not supposed to be eating the blood of an animal. It says the blood is the seat of the nefesh, the life force of that animal. And when I absorb that blood, I'm actually taking in like the endocrine system and the instincts of that animal. All the instinctual part of self are built, built into the nefesh, the maternal instinct, the survival instinct. So if you think about it, the nefesh is something that has like a lot of intelligence to it because, I mean, my body knows how to fight off disease. The white blood cells can fight against bacteria, against viruses, it's brilliant. But it's not a conscious, controlled brilliance. It's something that's just like instinctually built in. Um, my body knows how to create a child out of a little, little dot of liquid. That is amazing brilliance. But that is not conscious decision-making brilliance. It's something that's built into that nefesh force. 
So the nefesh part within us is always the part that enjoys experiencing physical pleasure, avoiding physical pain. So let's say I ate a really great steak dinner. Now, as I'm eating the steak, it's my taste buds and my mouth that are experiencing my body, is experiencing the pleasure of that steak, right? But then, like, after I finish eating it, you know that feeling of, like, like just that satisfied, contented feeling? That's my nefesh, which is enjoying the wholesomeness that came through the body experience. When I wake up in the morning and I just had a lot of good rest and I'm just feeling really calm and good, it's my nefesh that is enjoying the pleasure that was experienced through the body. So the nefesh pleasures come through body experience, but they're not just on the body nerves or on the body cell anymore. Now, the ruach part of ourselves, ruach literally means wind or spirit. And this is connected more to our emotional part of self. And we know that emotions are always the part that give energy, that give motion to whatever I'm going to do. You, can't, you will not have motion and motivation to want to do something unless your emotions are aroused or inspired or on target or on board with what you want to do. This is why it's also referred to as wind. It's the part, wind is something that blows things, gets things moving. The other elements may move on their own, like water flows, fire rises, earth stays put, but wind not only moves by itself, but it moves other things too. So the ruach part is my part that emotionally like makes me want to do something and gives me motivation. Now, this emotional part of ourself is the part that wants love, connection, relationships. This is the part that wants a sense of self-dignity, pride, And this part is also called ruach because the way that we really share this part of ourselves is through speech, through communication, which is through my wind. Every time I'm breathing and I'm sharing out what's going on inside my inner self, that communication is what creates the connection, the relationship, the emotional building between two people, and that is coming from the ruach part of self. Now, this part is already something that is above the animal world. This is something that is already unique to humans. So um, two dogs may want to be together, but that is an instinctual mating desire which the body is being pulled towards. The desire to have commitment, to have trust, to have love in the relationship, this dog can be with this dogess today and he can find another one two days from now and it really makes no difference because as long as the body is experiencing that bonding that's all it needs. Um, as a human my ruach part of self wants a sense of self-dignity, wants a sense of trust, wants a sense of loyalty, of commitment. Okay? Then we have the higher part of self which is called neshama. And the neshama is the part that wants truth, that wants meaning, the wants a connection with God. <coughs> okay. Any questions till here? Yes. Um, 
So I don't know if I should ask this question or not, but do only Jews have these five elements or? It's a great question. So it does say that a Jewish soul is a more expanded soul than a non-Jewish soul, not because we're better people and therefore we're chosen so we get a dish, but from the time of the giving of the Torah, when the Jews said, we want to be part of a spiritual program of self-development and of connection to godliness, so then Hashem says, okay, now there have to be 613 different channels of spiritual expression and of spiritual development and accomplishment. That requires a much larger capacity or potential. Does that necessarily mean that every Jew will be on a higher level and live up to that potential? No. The, my image that I often think of is you can have a seven ounce glass, you can have a 613 ounce glass. This one innately has greater capacity than this one. But if you fill this one up to the top with seven ounces, this one will be very full. They'll feel satisfied and they'll feel good with what it is. With this one, first of all, you could fill this with only two ounces, in which case the seven ounce one is still more full than this one is. And even if you fill this one with seven ounces, this one is not going to feel fully satisfied and complete. I forgot the exact statistic, but if you look at the percentage of Jews who join cults relative to the percentage of Jews in the population, you find, you know, Jews in the population, the world population is something like, you know, 0.01%, and Jews within cults were something like 20% of the, which was like unbelievably high. And I may mean not be exact, but what happens here is because Jews have this tremendous spiritual need almost for development and connection, when they haven't found a channel to meet it, they really search for it very often and really look for it because there, there's all that empty space in the 613-ounce cup. Now, therefore, it does say also that non-Jews have potential for the next for for reward in the next world, which is all but not just about like you did a good deed, here's your lollipop. But reward in the next world is really about spiritual connection to God and the pleasure that that brings. So they have seven ounces or seven channels for connection. A Jew potentially, of course, could have much more if he actualizes it. So. So no, aside I, from yes. aside from a, a Jewish soul having greater capacity mm -hmm. to grow and be bigger um, within those elements, in what way is a Jewish soul distinct so distinguished from a non-Jewish soul? I hear your question. I don't know if I know, I, I don't think I don't know the dynamics clearly enough within the soul of like, do non-Jews have only smurach and not neshama, or do they just have less than the 10 links within each? I'm not sure, but I can try to, I can try to research a little more for you for next week if I can surely find out more. Okay, now what happens is then that as we are going through our days, each one of these parts of ourselves is sending different messages or different voices to what I should do at different moments in time, right? So, um, Let's say I'm running a business and I have an opportunity to not fully report all my cash income and my income taxes and I could save maybe a thousand, two thousand dollars on my income taxes for this year. What would my nefesh say about that kind of choice? 
Good idea. Why would the nefesh enjoy that? More money means more physical pleasure. I can get a nicer car, I can get a nicer house, I can get better food. Like, I'll have so much more physical pleasure for the upcoming year. Definitely go for it, right? Um, would my ruach have any opinion over here? Not necessarily, right? Ruach is about connection, social relationship, that may not be there. Would my neshama have any opinion going on here? Yeah, right? Then the neshama would be the part of me that might say, is it worth having all those physical experiences to be dishonest within my business? And which part of me do I really want to develop and do I really want to become? So in that case, the choice that's going on right now, the free choice that's happening is, I'm hearing two voices within myself. My lower nefesh wants the money experience. My higher part of self wants the honesty. And then the real question is, which part of me is the more dominant or the more, the real identity of who I become? What happens is every time we make a choice in either direction, that choice either strengthens or weakens that part within our soul. So when I make a choice of, you know what, I'm gonna give up on that money and I'm gonna be honest despite that, I have now said, I am not just my nefesh, I have a higher part of me that wants to really decide take control here, and this is going to be my most dominant part of self. The Nefesh HaChayim says we then actually strengthen one of those, or two of those, or a number of those ten links within the Neshama part of self. Um, let's change the example a little bit. Let's say um, I'm in a relationship with a guy, and there's a choice as to whether we want to go further physically or not. I'm not married to him yet. What, my ne what might my nefesh say in this case? If it's gonna be physically pleasurable and I'll have a fun evening, why not go for it? It'll feel good on a physical body level, right? What might my ruach say on that? Why not? Now, is my ruach part of self the part that wants, let's say, truth and meaning? What, what is the ruach social always? Awareness. Social connection, love. So what might the ruach argue in either direction? So there might be a part that may be like, oh, if I'm with him, he'll love me. And you know, he'll build a relationship and we'll feel so good together, right? But the ruach also wants self-dignity, pride, trust, and commitment. So then there might be a part of me that says, but wait a minute, if I'm with him now and we really haven't gotten married yet and we don't have any ketubah and he could be with somebody else three weeks later, is that the kind of ruach connection and love and relationship that I really want to have as a person? So my ruach may simultaneously be sending me two messages. My body may just want the experience. My ruach might want trust and commitment but also wants love. And then my neshama, which wants truth, meaning godliness, might say, is this really going to be spiritually developing for me or for him if we were together and we haven't had a proper marriage within each other? Now, all this is happening simultaneously within my head and within my heart, and I can be feeling those pulls, and what Rabbi Dessler says is, there's an I, there's a me, who can hear all those voices going on, and then I make a choice which one of these parts of myself is going to be my primary identity, is going to define me at this moment. 
Now, at different moments in our lives, different voices win out, right? Um, I can wake up on Shabbat morning, look at my watch, and say to myself, like, oh, I know if I get out of bed right now, I can still make it to shul and do a little bit of davening, right? My nefesh and my body might just say, you've been going to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning the last three nights. You don't have to go to shul, just stay in bed, right? My ruach part, which wants love, connection, relationship, self-dignity and pride, may say, you know what, when I go to shul, I really do meet a lot of friends of mine, and I like the, the contact that I get to have with them together. When I daven as part of a group of Jews together, I feel more elevated and more inspired in my prayers. I like that ruach feeling of connection. My neshama, which wants truth and meaning, connection with God, might say, you know what, my whole Shabbat is different when I make it to shul. I think I want to add that truth and that meaning to my Shabbat. Now here I am, just lying in bed, and like, you know, you're like almost overwhelmed by all these different voices going on. But if I can kind of sort them through in my mind and in my head and just say, so which part of me do I want to really self-define as right now? And I just want to add, this isn't always so simple and simplistic as I just put it, right? A woman doesn't have an obligation to be in shul. So if I'm really exhausted and I feel like when I go to shul, I'm just going to be like spaced out and I'm not going to be able to pray, and maybe I'm going to end up just like sitting and talking to all my friends during prayer, that really wouldn't be too good. Maybe I'll go back to sleep for another half an hour and then spend 20 minutes at home really praying. That can be a good choice of not going to shul, but it's still coming from my voice of what will bring me to a greater level of truth or self-dignity or pride. Yes? It is so true. Like, it would be so nice if it could just always be simple, like, you know, just do the spiritual thing. And, you know, a person it really requires a lot of self-honesty and self-analysis and also good friends and mentors, if it's a bigger decision to make, to sometimes really work through and say, which part of me is really striving for this? And also, to get the clarity of, I really want to do what's right, and I'm not even sure which halachically would be the most appropriate choice to be able to make. Like, what do I prioritize between this and that? Any, any other? Yeah, I yeah. just want to clarify and make sure. So the uh, nefesh, like, could just be the examples you're using, but they seem to be always the wrong choice. But that's not necessarily always the case. Correct. So when I change the second thing, I might say to myself, you know what, I'm going to go back to sleep and follow exactly what my body needs needs right now. And my goal for sleeping is so that when I wake up, I'll be able to be more alert, more focused, better, be able to daven better. Or not, a, not necessarily even to pray better, but like I know that I, uh, when, when I'm with my roommate, my, my, my parents, my friend, and I am really exhausted, I am not a pleasant person to be around. I'm going to follow my nefesh interest or desire. Now, I sometimes have the opposite. Like, when I'm running out in the morning, I don't even want to bother stopping and having breakfast, right? But as a teacher, I know that like when I've had breakfast, sometimes I really am a more productive. So like for me to be able to take care of my nefesh and do that would be the neshama choice in that case too. Okay, good. Now once we have this, And maybe I should just point out also, since 
Whoops. Tell me your name again. Natasha. Natasha asked about it. Rabbi Dessler did mention last week also that there are times that we use rationalization to be able to not get us to do what we should do, but we usually know when we are doing that. So um, let's say there's a certain phone call that I really am supposed to make, but I really don't feel so comfortable about making this phone call for whatever reason. Maybe my rough part of self, the connection, the relationship part, calling this person really makes me feel awkward. I don't like the, uh, the, the connection that's there and I, I don't want to make it. Now, I can also make a list of other possible alternatives of things that I could spend my next hour doing other than this phone call. I also need to do laundry. Maybe I need to, you know, take care of some bills. Now, here you might just say, well, there are two voices going on inside myself. Here's my ruach part that really does not want to make the phone call. And the laundry and the bills do need to be taken care of. Which part of me would, would say maybe even take care of all the chores? Would that be nefesh, ruach, or nesham? Yes, it could be a neshama choice to be super responsible, right? And you might say, well, this is really great. Now, is it possible for a person to indefinitely push off that phone call because there are always other responsible things they need to take care of? Yes. So he says, sometimes when I don't want to have to face certain choices or certain decisions, I will constantly push my, my mind away from having to think about those things because they make me uncomfortable. He said, when you catch yourself doing that, realize that is a free choice because I'm diverting my consciousness from thinking about the things that I really don't want to have to face to be able to just do what's easier at this moment. And therefore, he says, when I sit down and I make that phone call, pat yourself on the back and feel the triumph of, you know what? I just made a really conscious free choice that even though my other parts of self were not on board, I really decided that I want to live up to a higher commitment, standard, or value if, if this was an important phone call to be able to make. This was something that just shaped me in terms of my responsibility and what I am. Yes? Um, is rationalization all necessarily your answer hara? So, as soon as you use the word rationalization, it means that I'm giving a rational reason for the action that I want to do. And the question really is, where is the starting point of the action? If it's starting from rational, it, it's very interesting, because in Hebrew, the word for my mind is called my moach. My heart, Anybody know how you say heart in Hebrew? Yeah. Lev. Good. My source of my body energy is called
called my kaved, which literally is my liver, which is the place where all my blood, as we spoke about before, the blood is the nefesh, the nefesh force is focused and is concentrated. Now, what happens is there can be differing reasons or starting points as to why I make a certain choice. So let's say I go to a certain party and I decide, let's even not make it spiritual. I'm on a diet, right? So I don't want to eat certain types of food. But then, there I am, right in front of the Viennese table. And all those, you know, chocolates and cakes that like, you know, pulling at me and I just, right? So now, I start thinking to myself, well, if I only have one chocolate parfait, that is not going to totally add five pounds to the whole system, right? I can manage that. Now, which was really the starting point of my desire in this case? My body. Right? My, my body wanted it. Now I'm coming up with a rational reason in my moach, in my mind, to allow myself to do that thing. Before I had the body pull, when I was at home, I decided none at all. But now that I have the body pull, it's, that, it's, 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 it's kind of leading me and taking control. In which case, my body is sending messages up to my lave, which says, I want. My lave is then sending messages up to my mind that says, give me a rational intellectual reason why this is okay. And then in the end, in the end of the next two hours, all of a sudden I found that I ate a, a chocolate parfait and three cookies and five potato chips and it ended up, you know, um, spiraling, spiraling downward. This is why in Hebrew, if you look, if, if my starting point is my mind and I first decide what do I want to do, what is my value in this case, and then I try to get my emotions on board to want to do it. And then that travels down to my body. Then what I really spelled out is the Hebrew word, mem lamitchaf, which is melech. Then I have just taken control. I've been the king. A melech is a king. I have been the controller or the free choicer, the king over where my body and where my heart wanted to go. If I let my body be the initiating point, then it spells the Hebrew word kaf lamed mem. <laughs> what is that? Nothing. Klu. Klu means nothingness. Whoa. Or you can say in Hebrew the word lechalot. Kila is to finish off, to be destroyed. So kalem would be almost self-destruction or losing track of myself. In which case, Rabbi Desley said, what we'll, be saying, what we'll be saying here is, I have made a free choice, but what I've, what I've chosen is to let my body really take control of me and go in whatever direction it wanted to go. There was a question that I just missed. Who had their hands up? Thank you. So what you're talking about in terms of kind of prioritizing and saying, I really don't want to have to do this, or don't want to do this, so I'm not going to do it, versus I know I should do it, so I will do it. That's like a conundrum I face all the time at work of prioritizing tasks. Like I really don't want to do this long project, so I'll do this thing first. And I notice that it never gets easier over time. Like it never feels easier to make the hard choice and say I'll do the long thing first. So does Hashem say, do the rabbis say that by consistently picking the harder thing and consistently kind of like taking yourself out of your comfort zone and doing that and doing it over and over again, that it'll get better? 
or that it'll continue to be a struggle? Like, what's that on that? Do you want the honest answer? That choice in itself may become easier as I habituate myself to doing that particular act. But the wonderful news is that as I grow in terms of making that choice easier, there will be new choices in my arena that Hashem will always bring up to me, which will be my new challenge, and will be equally difficult to have to work through that, because life is here for growth. And therefore, if there wouldn't be a new challenge to work on, so it could be that, you know, before I knew anything about, let's say, Torah observance and, you know, like having to like decide about eating kosher or not eating kosher every time was such a challenge. If I've been making kosher choices consistently for two years, three years, four years, at a certain point, as I'm passing the McDonald's, it may not even be another decision again or a struggle again as to whether to do it or not. But the new challenge might be, um, how am I going to deal with when I go home and my parents are going to be serving something which was cut with a knife that I didn't, right? So there will always be those additional things. And that doesn't mean that the previous accomplishment was meaningless because now I have the new one. It means that I've grown as a person, which is awesome, and Hashem is giving me new opportunities to always, to always grow there. So let's just end this, this part by, we don't have this, you don't have the, the text in front of you, but I want to just read to you his sum up line for this, just the end of chapter one. We're going to start chapter two next week. He says like this, to sum up, the essence of good bechira, which is choice, is to recognize the unique and indivisible nature of truth. And this is, in effect, to recognize the creator. The essence of a bad choice is to accept falsehood as reality. And this is, in effect, to deny the oneness of God and to accept the falsehood of a duality of powers in the universe. Sounds powerful, right? What he's saying here is, anytime we make a choice that is really a morally or a spiritually wrong choice, nobody makes it and says, you know what? I know this is bad, damaging, and, and, you know, just spiritually totally wrong and bad for me as a person, and I just don't care. I'm just going to, like, self-destruct. Usually what we do is there's some part of me that feels this is giving me a feeling of goodness. So let's say I cheated on a test and I got a 95. How do I feel when I get it back? Good. So even though like, I, I know that it was dishonest, I lied and I got away with it. So at that moment, I have a duality of truth in my head. Now it's like, it's nice to be honest, but it's really nice to get the 95. At that point, I have lost track of the singularity, the oneness of the only real thing that counts at the end of life won't be how many 95s I got, but will only be the kind of human being I became. So he said, he says, any choice that I'm making that is a little bit negative or a little bit wrong means on some level I haven't clarified in my own head why that thing is really so bad or so wrong. Last example to make this true, um, a certain person I know, a friend of mine, um, did something that was insulting or hurtful to me. So I go back and now I spend the next 20 minutes bad-mouthing or gossiping about her to a number of friends, right? 
How do I feel at the end of that session? Accomplished. Accomplished. <laughs> Validated, right? Like, she put me down. I'm going to really, you know, and then my friends all tell me, like, yeah, I can't believe it. How could she have done that to you? That's so obnoxious. And then I feel, like, really good, right? Validated. Validated, right? Spiritually, what, what, Avera, what, um, what the right transgression have I just done? Lush and Hara, right? So what happened is, instead of my being able to really work on figuring out how to improve the relationship between me and her without pulling myself down, without pulling her down, or learning how to avoid it, all I've done is I've given myself a false sense of high by knocking her, and I haven't really helped myself or helped her improve this at all. At that point, I've lost the oneness of truth. I've made, put my own ego and my own false artificial attempt at maintaining myself instead of what really would be something that would build myself as a person. So what I want to leave you with on a practical level is, as you're making choices over the next week or so, just notice within your own self where the different voices coming from. Which part of me is the nefesh? Which part is the ruach? When is it a body choice mostly? When is it a social connection choice where I, I want validation or I want dignity or I want love from somebody else? When is it really coming from that higher message of I am really choosing truth. And every time I do make a, cho a choice that's not just a body choice and not just an ego choice, but it's really coming from a place of this is truth, validate yourself and realize I have just strengthened that piece of me within myself called my neshama. So to sum it up in, in really short, I would just say the body wants to feel good. The ruach the ego wants to look good. The neshama wants to be good. And a lot of our choices will be, is this choice feeling good at the moment? Is this choice looking good to others in terms of image and how I am viewed by others? Or is this choice really a choice of internal intrinsic goodness? Mm -hmm. Then I have made a free choice. Wait, say that last thing you said one more time. Did that choice that I just make, did I make it because it just feels good? Did I make it because it looks good to others and it gives me validation from others or respect or an image from other people? Or is this something that really is a choice of goodness that helps me be a good person? When I have done that, I have really exercised my free choice and those are the things that are really shaping and, ch and changing me as a person. Okay, have a great week. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.